Hi, this is Carrie Brownstein. This is DJ Premier. This is Darren Aronofsky. You got the Rizzo right here. Rose McGowan. Right here. Aisha Tyler. A tribe Called Quest. Fred Armisen. Fritz Paul. Javier Munoz, Seth Meyers. Frankie Cosmos. Flying Lotus. Hi, we're Haim, and you're listening to the Talk House Podcast. Ow! What is up? It's Ellie Einhorn. Welcome back to the Talk House Podcast. We're so glad you decided to spend a little time with us. Joining me from the Windy City, now known as The Shy, it is... It's Josh Modell, Executive Editor. What is up, Elia? Hey, hey, man. Good to hear your voice. Always a pleasure. Josh, we have a fantastic talk today that was originally aired as part of the Talk House Podcast Live on Insta series. The artists featured today... Hanif Abdurraqib and Adia Victoria. Yeah, these two are huge fans of each other's work, clearly very friendly. It's a really great kind of intimate chat. Josh, I met Hanif at the On Air Festival where Talkhouse presented Black Thought and White Sinek in conversation. And Hanif and I got to spend some time together backstage just talking about hip hop and poetry. And he's someone I've been wanting to have on the show for quite a while. Hanif is a poet, essayist, and cultural critic, and last year released the really fantastic book, Go Ahead in the Rain, Notes to a Tribe Called Quest. Top my list of music books last year. He also dropped the poetry collection, A Fortune for Your Disaster. So 2019 was big for him. When I asked Hanif if he had a recorded poem that we could share in the intro, he said he didn't, but actually recorded one just for this show. Here's... How can black people write about flowers at a time like this? Maybe all the blues require is a door through which a person can enter and exit. Every god hides their eyes behind a blue hood. The hooded devil waiting at the crossroads doesn't give a fuck about the women who sent a man wailing with a guitar case on his back. It isn't loneliness if enough tongues have your chorus jumping from underneath their hooded ruckus. Maybe... All the blues require is a person who has been touched before in a caravan of hands busy with their own pleasures. If you can't fashion a song out of that, there is no God or devil that could make something of your soul anyway. A father stands over his crying son and hisses, I'll give you something to cry about, as if he didn't already bring a child into a world that requires neither of them. The man is an incredible writer. Yeah, and he's so goddamn smart, he makes us all look really good just by being on the show. I know. The two of them, I'll tell you, both artists today are operating at a much higher level than me. Maybe I should just recommend that listeners have a pencil and paper handy to make a reading list for all the books that they talk about. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's so cool because they both live in music and words. Adia Victoria is also a poet. That's right. They get into it really deep uh, about poetry. And she even kind of half threatens at some point in this talk to quit music in favor of writing. Don't do it, Adia. No, do both. So Adia Victoria is kind of a one-woman genre, I think. uh, And that genre is called gothic blues. And it's kind of a perfect descriptor for what she does. She kind of makes the blues dangerous again. She's from South Carolina. She's a self-taught musician. And she's incredibly passionate She talks in this talk about kind of losing herself on stage, which is an amazing sight. She's really an incredible musician. Yeah, and she's an artist who can capture that power on wax as well. Adia's last record was Silences from 2019. For that LP, she worked with the Nationals' Aaron Dessner. Not unlike a certain Taylor Swift in the last couple of weeks. I think Tay-Tay heard Adia's record and thought she needed some of that. Dude, entirely possible. (laughs) Here's one of my favorite tracks from that album. This is Different Kind of Love. Can I get unstuck? Is it way too much? I need a different kind of love. She's awesome. Yeah, at one point in the chat, she describes a conversation between her and Aaron Desner in which she says she wants a song to sound like Billie Holiday getting lost in a Radiohead song or something to that effect, which which is amazing. And of course he says, oh yeah, we can do that. Well, and it's so fun to hear their takes on other musicians. One of the things that Hanif told me they really wanted to talk about was Little Richard. And that's a great jumping off point for this conversation. It leads into the history and context of the blues. And I learned here, Josh, that Beyonce is a blues artist. Yeah, I didn't know that either, but now I do. 
We also hear very specifically the differences and similarities between being an artist from the South, which she is, and an artist from the Midwest, which Hanif is. Yes, Hanif big ups Ohio in pretty much every conversation I've ever heard him give. He is loyal, loyal, loyal. Love the dedication. Yeah, man. And we also get a very nuanced view of Flannery O'Connor. Yeah, it's a super interesting part of the conversation. It's amazing how they kind of jump from talking about Little Richard to talking about the National to talking about Flannery O'Connor to talking about Fiona Apple. It's all kind of a (laughs) a big, incredible stew that clearly informs what both of them do. Shall we serve that stew? Yes. (laughs) How are you? I am extremely zoomed in. How are you? (laughs) I'm good. I'm good. How have you been holding up? How have you been uh, doing? You know, I mean, it depends on the day, honestly. Like, some days are better than others. It's weird. Like, I'm feeling like strange combinations of emotions, you know? Like, sometimes I feel bored but angry, and then I'll feel sad but, like, rage. But then I feel, like, relieved because I'm not, like, living in a van right now but sad. Yeah, same. I think the sad-angry combination is real. The sad-angry combination is... uh. I really uh, oscillate pretty wildly between it. Like, I don't get bored much. I wish I were more bored. I'm kind of, I'm at a point where I'm kind of craving boredom, you know, but I'm thankful to stay busy, you know? Yes. But on top of that, you know, it's kind of like frustration that, so I guess it's not anger, it's more frustration. I don't know. This is cool. I'm glad we're, I'm glad we're talking. Uh, Thank you for writing about Johnny Cash earlier this week, or I guess like last week. And I was excited to do this in part because I think, you know, so much of the stuff that I'm interested in, I think you have a level of expertise in, you know, like I'm interested in Black Southerness as someone who has like people who roam the South undoubtedly, but who like doesn't have a, like I don't have a current connection to the South. And I was really interested in talking to you, one, about Little Richard, because I know we had taught, we had like kicked that around back yeah. when we lost, which now seems like, you know, years ago. But, you know, I think about Little Richard all the time, I, I like come across old records and I come across old stuff. So I, I, how are you still in the current mode coping with Little Richard's death? Yeah, I remember the day he passed, you posted something and I like, I kind of came at you pretty fast. I was like, hey man, can we talk? Like, yeah. I just wanted someone to talk with you. were like, just give me some time. I was like, you're right. This is a weird time. And I probably shouldn't be in front of people right now. Anyhow, oddly enough, I can't think of a better time for him to pass than when he did. Because... You know, when I say I'm bored, it doesn't mean like I'm just like, oh my God, I'm so bored. It's just like, I think it's, I'm just still with myself for the first time. Like in 2019, I spent like 225 days on the road, like touring. And if he had died while I was in the van, you know, the wheels would have kept rolling under me. And I never would have had the time to stop and like think about it. But it's caused me to go back and reflect. So I used to work at the, um, the Union Station Hotel. It's an old historic hotel here in Nashville. And he used to order his breakfast from us every single morning. And our general manager would go and deliver his his breakfast to him. And, you know, it was just like this really cool thing. It's like, oh, we got to get Lil Richard's breakfast ready. Like I'll put the orange slices on next to, you know, his cereal, whatever. But so it's caused me to kind of go back and reflect on my own journey from working in the kitchen to being a blues artist. And that's something, you know, that he he spoke about in interviews was like, you know, growing up in in Georgia and being in the kitchen working like so many black Southern people were, Mm -hmm. you know, we got our starts in some white person's kitchen and to have that connection with him, you know, we're both in the kitchen and him passing, like, it's just kind of made me go back and reexamine what he's meant for me, not just as a musician, but like as a blues artist and a Southerner. Yeah. How are you dealing with it? I'm okay. I, you know, I, I'm someone who archives and is interested in archival. And so I got all this, um, Little Richard stuff that, you know, immediately after he died, I got the old Rolling Stone cover that he was on. I got the Live in Paris record. You know, the Live in Paris show, I think people are super familiar with, um, but there's a record that dropped of that recording. And it was it was kind of good to just sit with the history of Little Richard as someone who, you know, like a, like a lot of Black artists, not only of his time, but of our current time too, who defied... A, any plea for him to stay in one place, you know, yes. like who bounced between like both the holy and the secular and did it with equal measures of enthusiasm. You know, so I was thinking like today, like Mavis Staples birthday's today. Mavis, Mavis is 81, you know, and 
Bless I was her. watching these. Yeah, I know. Like, isn't it, she's still with us? I was so excited to, like, I don't know. I get very excited about um, birthdays that feel, like, ancestral. You know, like, my people love Mavis, and so I love Mavis. And the fact that she's still with us, it feels like I'm celebrating an elder, you know? Yeah. Um, and I got up this morning, and I watched a lot of old Mavis Staples performances. And there's something so thrilling about the way she does this thing where she kind of accumulates energy during her performances. She yeah. kind of, like stretches towards the ecstatic and then at the end of the performance it's just like you know she's like shaking and I don't know if that is gospel in the traditional sense but there's something holy about that you know it's like clinging to a secret that you can't hold on to anymore you know and okay. I think in Richard's performances that was so present too where it was like he would just have all the, he would be stretching towards the ecstatic at all times and I think that's kind of like stretching black towards gospel the ecstatic. too I like that expression I might have to put that in my little poetry journal <laughs> That's cool. I want to talk about the blues because, and I'm sorry because I I know this is supposed to be like a in-conversation type shit, but I feel like because of the way my brain's wired and because of how I spent spent most of my life slash career, I just go like full music journalist mode, even when I don't want to. But what I love about your songs is how like very much in the blues tradition, you are so good at adapting to several different voices or like stepping into several different voices at once. And so like the eye in your work, like when it's like when you're a story, you're a storyteller, right? And so the eye in your work often like shifts where it's like, and I'm, I'm wondering how, how you see that happening in your like non-lyric writing, like in your poetry, in your prose work. Like, do you find yourself slipping into the blues tradition? Or are you easily able to kind of like fragment yourself as the speaker? You know, that's such a good question. I'm not classically trained as a writer, as a musician. You know, I'm a high school dropout and then a community college dropout. So the thing that I lean into the most when I talk about the eyes, I kind of grasp towards being like the the perfect observer just because of, by definition, what I have been growing up in the South and South Carolina, you know, I've been Black, poor, I've been a complete outsider. And so it kind of, it kind of taught me to not look to be in the middle, to ever be centered. And that is traumatic and it is difficult, but it also gives you this really cool perspective of being able to examine everything and everybody. So when I'm writing, I kind of picture just this roving eye, you know, reading Sylvia Plath, like she talks about being like this perfected, just like eye roving over everything. And it's so terrifying. But I think there's a power in that of like, when you're looking at the power structure, the the normative paradigm and saying, I'm watching you. I'm creating mm-hmm. art from you. You know what I mean? So yep. to me, that's the blues, like that ability to observe and hold certain truths that you get only by virtue of being like the absolute outsider. The thing that really inspires me a lot is like, I look back at these women like Ma Rainey and Bessie Smith, Victoria Spivey, like these were women that were like one chain away from slavery, like one generation. And the first thing that they did with their freedom Firstly, over their bodies was they were like, I'm going to start telling some truths about shit that I've seen. And so I think that that spirit of the blues, the scholarship of the blues is really a, a philosophy of observation, of, of holding uh, many difficult truths at once. And that's kind of how I, I approach my poetry. That's how I slice into my art. Yeah, it feels I, I wish more people talked about the blues as reporting or yeah. like as an act of of reportage. Yeah. Um, because it, it, like, it's an observational form, I think, more so than because of the people it came from, right? And, like, yes. I, you know, a thing that I came up hearing a lot is that um, blues is not a genre or blues is not a sound. It's an affliction, right? Like, you're right. afflicted with the blues and then you crawl yourself towards the making of of that which the blues is asking you to make. You know what I mean? Yeah, um, yeah. I grew up watching blues artists who seemed to be having a good time, who seemed, like, pleasurable. You, the other day you shared that picture of you when you, like, fucked up your thumb on stage and you were, like, bleeding everywhere. Yeah. And I was like, yo, that's, like, a perfect... But you weren't, like... I don't know. I mean, I can't say if you were... I mean, I'm sure you were in pain to some degree, but you were still, like... You were, like, joyful. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. I remember looking at that picture, like, that, to me, feels like the blues, too, right? Yeah. Where the pain is worn outside for the audience to look at and say, wow, that looks painful. But the yeah. person who's actually delivering the language is experiencing something perhaps otherworldly that is joyful. Yes. You know, it's funny, like when it happened, I I don't remember that moment. Like if, if that person hadn't captured that on stage, I would not be able to tell you anything about it in detail. Like I don't remember, I didn't feel anything about my physical pain. The only thing that I remembered in that moment while I was like bleeding 
was feeling completely in control of myself, was feeling mm. completely in control of my my music and my message. It was funny because that was the first time that I actually played with my drummer, Naps. We just hired him before Afropunk. So this was like our first gig. So I was like very in tune with him. Like I was making sure to send him messages with my body about the rhythm, like to, to make sure he was locked in with me. Um, so I think just being that locked in with him, like being that rooted in the rhythm of the music, it, it kind of like lifted me somewhere else. Cause like normally, like I'm a chicken shit. Like if I did that in my day-to-day life, like, oh my God, I'm dying. Like, what? that's it, Jesus. So, and that's an interesting thing though. It's like, the blues performers, like, especially the women, like I'm very honed in on the women right now. Like I love the dudes, but the women were coming at it. They were cutting it from a different way. They very much knew how to, to display their pain and show it, but it was done in a communal sense. You know, you have women like, like Ma and Bessie, like when they would sing these blues songs, it was actually like a communal, like church experience. Like they'd be like, Hey ladies, like address the audience. Like, Hey ladies, like you have this Mm -hmm. man that's like, doing like X, Y, and Z to you, here's what you do. So it wasn't so much like, oh my God, look at me and my pain. It was more like, look at this bullshit we have to go through. And the fact that yeah. I'm going through it too with you, it, it makes it not hurt so much, but that also doesn't negate the pain. It doesn't dismiss it. It just makes it manageable. Right. Yeah, I love that. Because you do hear that, like the blues as an instructive form, um, particularly when women sang it, where it was just yeah. like, which you still hear. I mean, I think that thread runs throughout like, modern R&B to some, not to like do a play on like things. I think about like Hit Em Up Style where Blue Cantrell was like <laughs> run down about how to like. Hey ladies. Yeah, you know what I mean? <laughs> like it runs straight through it where it's just like, that song is like, yo, here's how you steal this no good motherfucking stuff. That's right. right. And, and it's like very much embedded in that blues scholarship even where it's just like. Absolutely. Instructive. You know. <laughs> I try and tell people like Beyonce is a blues artist, yo. Like mm-hmm. you listen to like me, myself, and I. Like she's saying, all my ladies, if you hear me, help me sing it out. It's like black women have had to do that. We've had to come to each other. Like we've had to hold space for each other because literally there wasn't like nah motherfucker that was going to hold that space for us. Yeah. And the only place that we could go where we didn't feel like we were being like gaslit was like to other black women. So it's like you know what I'm going through, or if you haven't, you don't know what I've, I went through. Yeah, no, yeah. Yeah, so that's yeah. the blues. I love this. This is great. Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I, I've been thinking about Mavis Staples all day and about how also like how how gospel, as I came to understand it, intersected with the blues. Yeah. And, how, and I know she's not Southern. I mean, or at least she's like, well, in some ways she is. I mean, I know that, I don't know. I, by, by virtue of the great migration, I imagine Mavis Staples is at least somewhat Southern, you know, yeah. or at least like, uh, steeped in something Southern. Gospel is a music, and I wasn't raised Christian, and so like my relationship with gospel is all sound-based, where it was like, I like the sound of a choir. Yeah. I like what happens when a number of voices come together to create one voice, and so I'm going to gravitate towards gospel because that's happening there. Yes. And I only understood it as joyful music that had roots in people who had experienced such horror yes. that they had to imagine they had to imagine like another world beyond the one that they were living in. Yeah. Um, and I, I know the blues is, is born out of some of those similar horrors, but it feels like gospel is just kind of like the other side of that coin. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you, if you have like a, any like gospel training, but it feels like in some of your songs, I still feel that like that that spirit of the intersection of gospel and blues. Yes, absolutely. It's like, I feel like growing up black in the South, like you just being like in that air, like coming up, on that ground in that land, like you understand what that means. So, you know, full disclosure, I wasn't raised in the black church. So I was actually raised in the, in a very white seventh day Adventist church. So we were as removed as you could be from that gospel tradition. I had to sing like the old, like dusty ass hymns, like just like, Oh my God. But my mother, she grew up, she grew up Adventist as well, but she grew up with black Adventists. So we had like these black hymns, and we, we recognized the Jewish Sabbath. So from um, sundown Friday night to sundown Saturday night, that was our Sabbath. Everything secular got shut down. You know, we weren't supposed to turn on lights. And we would open Sabbath together in our living room, singing these old, like, Black Christian songs, like, Humble Me, and I'm, We Are Climbing Jacob's Ladder. And as a child, I didn't believe in Jesus. I didn't believe in God. Like, even though I went to a Christian school, like, I knew it was like, hmm, but I understood what music did. Like I understood that coming together. Like I understood that kind of pausing 
everything external and focusing on this message and how it brought you closer to your people. So that's always been what like brings me to gospel music. It's like, I, I can give two shits about what Jesus does with your body when you die. I don't, you die. But I understand that what that music does to you while you're on this, you know, this physical plane. And it's, I think that's sacred. I think that's, I think it's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, that's, in some ways that's comforting because I, you know, again, I, I just don't have much of a relationship with. Uh, How did you grow up? I was raised Muslim. Muslim? Husband. Yeah. Uh, but I also grew up in a very musical household. And I grew up okay. with people who had, like, my parents had converted in the 70s, right? Right. And before that, they were Christian. And so there was, like, a relationship with, with gospel music or at least a relationship with artists who, you know, like Aretha Franklin is essentially a gospel artist. You know, like, there's no way. Did you see, did you see the Amazing Grace documentary? Mm-mm. Um, oh, you should watch it. It's It's beautiful. I've... I've seen it like four times in theaters and cried each time. It's on some streaming service now, but I feel like watching it at home, I don't know, would be weird for me. Anyway, but Aretha's like a gospel artist in some ways, like, you know, half of the Motown artists were gospel artists. And right. so- You consider at least her a gospel singer? Yeah, yeah. Or at least like anyone who was unafraid to use the tools, who came up, I mean, Aretha Franklin, like who came up singing in the church or Marvin Gaye who came up singing in the church and were unafraid to use those tools to make the music that wasn't being made in the church. That feels to me like those are gospel artists in some way. But I mean, obviously, you know, I I think the musician is more than the kind of like, than the tools they use to make their music. But I I do think that like, there's some stuff with like, especially Gay, Franklin and so on, where it's like, you can hear it. It's inseparable from what they were doing. Absolutely. It's interesting. It's like, I think that the reason like, so you see Aretha as a, a gospel singer. Like I see her as a blues singer. But I also see them as like two sides of the same coin. It's like mm-hmm. it, to be able to evoke, you know, the Lord that powerfully, you also have to be able to evoke the devil. You know, you had a lot of blues singers that that step back and forth from that line. It's like they would feel like they were going too far into the darkness. So they would go towards their redemption. But I think it's you're still hearkening the spirit of like the otherworldly, whether it's gospel or blues, whether you're calling on, you know, God or the devil. It's, you're still not dealing with like our physical existence. And that's powerful. Wow, that's really great to think about. This show is brought to you by Patreon, who ask, creators, are you tired of being paid in clicks and likes? Social media and streaming platforms help people find your work, but getting you paid is another story. With Patreon, you can stop rolling the dice of ad revenue and per-stream payouts and grow your creative career through the direct support of the people who care the most, your fans. Since Patreon is built for creators, not advertisers, you'll skip the middleman and develop a sustainable income source by offering a monthly membership to your fans. In turn, they'll get access to exclusive community, premium content, and the chance to become active participants in the work they love. The creative system is broken. So if you're a podcaster, video maker, musician, writer, illustrator, a creative person of any kind, sign up on patreon.com now. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com. And change the way your creativity is valued by building the steady income stream you deserve. Someone asked what the name of the doc is. Uh, it's Amazing Grace. Oh, yeah. Thank you, Philip B. Williams, uh, who is an amazing poet. Do you read Philip B. Williams? Haven't yet, but I will. The book, uh, Thief in the Interior. I hope I'm not embarrassing. He's just like in the comments. But uh, the book, Thief in the Interior, is is a book I loved a lot and a book that really guided me through the writing of my second book of poems. Like it was, I, you know, I'm someone who, I don't know if you do this when you write, but when I write, at least when I set out to do a project, as I move through it, I kind of just accumulate a stack of books that I that I find myself returning to, you know, like a stack of books that it's like, all right, well, and I know exactly where this poem is and this one, and this poem is informing this part of my work. Yes. Um, and, yes. and Thief in the Interior is one of those books. But also, this leads me, we have, we have like homies in common. We have like poet homies in common who, you know, in, in Nashville who would talk to me about your your work and your work as a, because I knew you as a musician first and sorry that I'm all over the place. You worked with Aaron Dessner, which I... Yeah, the homie. I, you know, a thing that I a thing that I do that I will not do to you, but a thing that I do to so many people is 
I love Ohio. I'm from Ohio. I love Ohio. And anytime people have like a small connection to Ohio in any way, yeah. I, I kind of like project them being in Ohio and on to unwilling, you know. So in some <laughs> ways you have like a small corner of an Ohioan living inside. Yeah. <laughs> no. So yeah, I worked with um, Aaron Desner for my second album, Silences, which was fucking hilarious. It's like, because you would never like put me like gothic blues artists and like Aaron Desner in the same kind of category. And like, I didn't know the national, I, I, I heard of them because like a lot of my friends love their music, but I, it never like found me. So, uh, you know, my label, they were kind of like, you know, we have some interest from uh, Aaron Desner. And I was just like, so I completely like, just approached this like some, cool, that's awesome. And I, I, there was no pretension there. So like, I went up to his house in Hudson, like this little like Southern punk and uh, my creative partner, Mason Hickman. And we just like hung out with him for a few days. And it was like completely cool. Like, and it was like interesting us like getting a feel for each other. Cause you know, we had no context for one another. It's like, I'm not from the Midwest. It's like, you ain't no, no niggas from the South. Like <laughs> how we <laughs> make this shit work. But it, but I love that because it was like a pure relationship. I was like, ah, I don't know you, like you don't know me, but I like the toys you have in your studio and you seem like a cool dude. So let's make some shit. And I remember like he asked me when we first started um, pre-production together, like a year before we cut anything, he was like, what are your influences? Like, what are you listening to? What do you want this record to sound like? And I was like, I think it'd be cool if this record sound like Billie Holiday got lost in a Radiohead song. And he was like, <laughs> okay we can do that and I was like cool we can work together I absolutely adore him like he's kind of become like my big brother our last day of working together at Long Pond at his studio he, you know he took me aside and he was just like I just want you to know like you have people like you have community here and like for me that that meant a lot that it's hard to find community in Nashville that's genuine because everyone's still like cutthroat yeah. about, you know and like uh, I don't know uh, he's just good people and I I love that man I'll never leave him alone. <laughs> I, uh, I mean, the national means so much to me because you know I'm from I'm an Ohioan, um, yeah. and like they've they've kind of like propelled I think me and a lot of my friends here through so many different seasons of our lives, you know, because they've been around for so many different seasons of our lives, and so there's like national songs for every era of Absolutely. of you know there's a national song for the era the diner I loved closed, and there's a national song for the era of the third breakup of the third summer, you know that kind of yes, bullshit, of um, not bullshit, but like you know what I mean. Yeah, that and, what you mean. And so, but when that record, when Silence is dropped, I was so thrilled. I was so excited because it was kind of like a merging of the of these worlds I was interested in. Where like you as a blues artist, so I heard your your other music. I'd heard your first record, and was like, okay, this is a callback to the blues that I love. That it's like updated. You know what I mean? It's like the blues I grew up loving, but it's just like on a modern sonic landscape. And then when I when Silence is dropped, it felt so I don't know. It resonated in such a big way, and Barack Obama liked it. <laughs> that, was, that was wild. <laughs> that would weird in a good yeah. way, I suppose. No, it was it was wild. I was I was in the woods in South Carolina, gone back home, and I got a text from my publicist. So I was just like, "What? Okay." <laughs> yeah. But I love yeah. that. It's like you know, like I love that you you know for you like the national like having artists that can talk to you in that intimate level, like shit. Like this was my jam. Like when my diner like you know went kaput. Like that's some real shit. Like that's some true like heartfelt shit and i and i i saw like you know being on tour with them the way that you know matt was able to connect with the audience and like speak to people i thought that was brilliant like i thought it was poetic i think i scared him a little bit but i matt yeah i think he thought it was a little weird <laughs> why do you think you scared matt? matt's matt's unshakable i don't think he knew what to do with me you know i'm not one of these little indie white girls so i was like <laughs> I, I was like you better not let me on the stage with you i'll steal your stage you know but uh <laughs> but no i mean all that <laughs> i mean matt yeah i don't matt, that's true matt all that running around the crowd and whatnot i feel like i thought he would be unshakable Nah, man, you let a you let a black woman look at you funny, and you can you can shake anybody. <laughs> <laughs> but that's where I had to go to because it's like I gotta go in front of these crowds and like sing to these people that don't like they don't know black women like me. Like I feel like every night I have to constantly introduce myself. Like right. I'm impressed that people even say my name right. So it's like I constantly in this Americana world I have to be like this is what I do, this is what I don't do, and like. Because I'm the first of me that people have met before. And I've done that intentionally because in Nashville, if you're a Black singer or a musician, 
it's a very niche category because your audience is going to be white. You have people in your team that want you to kind of prepare yourself as a product of white consumption. And usually that means like hearkening back to some sort of like throwback style or something that's already been done. It's safe. It's safe for white people to consume. And from the moment, like I came out the gate, I was like, fuck that. Like, that's the world that I had to escape as a kid in the, in the church. Like, I'm not going back there. It's like, I'm fucking freak. Like, I'm a fucking character out of a Flannery O'Connor novel. So either you gonna, you're going to deal with me or you don't, but I'm not hiding who I am. So, yeah, it's like sometimes you get people look at white people look at you like kind of like, huh. But, I, you know, at this point in my career, I'm just like, just stick around a little bit. You'll start to understand. Don't worry. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I got you. Yeah, I mean, I think as someone who has, who has seen you live and has been in the audience, right, and has kind of, you know, I think a thing, I was talking about how my brain goes to, to music journalist mode. It really does that in live shows where what's happening on the stage is sometimes secondary to my wanting to see the reactions of the people in, in the ecosystem. Yes. And where this, I think, happens most effectively is when you are like witnessing a very skilled, very unique opening act that perhaps is a little outside of the band that people like that the, the majority of people maybe showed up to see. I remember seeing like Courtney Barnett open, oh shit, maybe for the national. Honestly, maybe for the national. Um, <laughs> and there was, you know, and the vibe was, you know, it was one of those things where like, oh, this is interesting. And I remember I saw, I, but I saw you play in a, in a space, I don't remember where, but I think you were maybe like the act that night. I just, I think your work challenges people and I think your presence challenges people. And I don't mean that like in a, a bad way. I mean that in an excellent way. Like, I mean, I, I think that the spaces you're in require people to be be challenged by your presence or, or at least like I think with black artists, the challenge is going to be present whether we want it to or not. And yeah. so in some ways, like the work that we're doing is, is, uh, trying to ask people to reckon with why they feel like they're met with that challenge, you know? Absolutely. Um, yeah, I, I like that. This, I like that. I, I fell on a tangent. I was going to ask you about writing more because I, you're like a big Flannery O'Connor. You're like, a, you really fuck with Flannery O'Connor real heavy, right? Oh, Is I, that I, what I love Flannery. Yeah, okay. I love Flannery. That's my girl. What's oh, what's your favorite? <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> I, mean, I was like... Let's just get it out the open. <laughs> uh, I know how to bring it up. I'm so glad you brought I was like, all right. I'm not going to lie. For like an hour today, I was like, I want to talk about Flannery O'Connor, but how do we, how do we like gently get to the point where it's... <laughs> I, you know, I just think there's a point where you're like reckoning with, as, as someone who loves artists and loves writers of, of like capital C certain era, you know, I think like, how do you, how do you reckon with their racism and still have an affection? Oh, baby, you know, it's not my business. I grew up in the South and I have internalized white supremacy. I got my own shit. So it's like this bitch was growing up in, in Georgia, fucking Savannah in the 1940s. Like, yeah, she's supposed to be racist. Like she was supposed to be racist, you know. And I think that there's this kind of twee thinking right now that's popular with white liberals of like, well, you know, she was not able to overcome this shit. It's like, nigga, you have not overcome this shit. Like, <laughs> and, and you have Beyonce and you still are racist as shit. But my thing is like, I don't really give a shit about artists' personal lives. Like, I don't, I don't care. Like, I don't, I'm not a believer in cancel culture. It's like, if I need to turn you off, I'll turn you off. Like, I'm a Black Southerner. If I canceled everything that hated me, I would be sitting starving in a cardboard box. So okay. I have to be a little bit more savvy with my consumption. But I understand, like, what she did with her power when she was alive. Like, she took a huge stand. Like, she examined the church. See, she examined white supremacy. She examined the South in ways that, like, if I was in a position, I wouldn't have done that shit. Like, I'm like, mm, that's too hard. But she did that. Like, she challenged herself and she pushed her vision beyond what she was told the way that the world looks like. And I think that there's there's grace to be found in that. And she passed down lessons to people like me that I could learn how to examine the South. So it's like, yeah, you probably wouldn't have let me come and sit in your house and like drink tea. But like, I don't need to. I have your art. I have like you distilled. So you can you can die a racist. That's not my business. That's between you and God. But the art that you left is holy and it's sacred. And I, I fucking love it. And know? there's tools, yeah. And there's tools like within that work that I think can lead Black people to reimagine the spaces they're in, even though it wasn't intended to when it was written. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yes. Yes. Who are some like Black Southern writers that you are like contemporaries or you know historical legendary ones? Who are some Black Southern writers that you've been drawn to? 
I'm currently reading a lot of uh, Sterling Plum. His work has been guiding me right now through quarantine. And then I feel so bad because I always mess up this brother's name. Yusuf, the poet Yusuf. Komunyaka? Yes. Yo, I, at the start of every year, I read Neon Vernacular, the collected joint. Yes. At the start of every single year, I read it. I revisit it and read it all the time. It's just, it gets, my, it gets me together. Yeah. And I'm someone who, when it comes to poetry, I don't always like the collected joints because I think there's something, and I know that this isn't a one-to-one, and every time I make this comparison, my, my poetry friends scold me on it not being a one-to-one. So I'm saying now that I know this isn't a one-to-one, but as someone who grew up listening to, to records, you know, like, um, and was a music critic way before I was a poet, there's something about the, the, the new and collect, or the collected poem things that feel like greatest hits albums in some ways, when I am someone who really loves, like, an album cut. Now, there are some exceptions, like the collected Gwendolyn Brooks, like, doesn't miss, you know what I mean? Like, you just... I, I don't know. In the collected, there's the Hayden, the Robert Hayden collected, where it's like, I just have to have that. And there are some poets who their their books are just harder to acquire right, um, right. or they're out of print or all this stuff, so I get that. But And there are some poets, too, whose arc, I think, serves. Now I'm, like, talking myself out of my point about how I don't always fuck with collecteds because now I'm remembering a lot of collecteds I fuck with. Um, <laughs> but there are poets whose arc is served by a collected. Like, I think about Natasha Trezaway had her... Yes, yes, yes. Um, collected joint come out a few years ago and to have her work to have her like her her literal her historical work right yes just i think she's a historian and that is so that requires yes. an arc i think that requires like an arc uh that we all can follow yes. um if anyone wants that it's called monument by natasha try the way it's very good all her books are good to me but yes. if you just want the collected joint but yeah kumanyaka i read it every year i'm a more eager reader of poetry than writer of poetry particularly now i think okay. um and I know I just had a book of poems come out, but I, I think that from the, that book coming out to now, I've been more excited to read books of poems than I have been to write my own poems. Okay. Um, and I am wondering where you're at. Like, are you, are you writing poems in, in building out a book? Are you just writing poems and enjoying the writing of poems? Where are you at? Man, I'm just writing, I'm writing poems right now to stay sane. So my plan this year was actually to go back to school. I was going to go to Vanderbilt and uh, study Southern literature, but then COVID hit and that didn't happen. I think I had like one foot out of the music biz at this point. It's just like, ah. but I've been ingesting so much history about the South, the terror and the beauty that I've been forced in to write poetry because that's the only way that I can reckon with it and stay sane. And there was a quote that uh, Brother Yusuf talked about like poetry is that tension between the beauty and the terror and like bringing something that's like uh you know illuminating from that juxtaposition and going through this this moment right now like i'm going through so much fucking terror uh, and chaos in the external world but there's also this beauty because you know i live with my mom and it's like we're kicking it like ogs right now um so i'm i use poetry to kind of like strike that balance or like examine what is the relationship beauty with terror how about you, like, with your reading of poetry, like, what do you glean from that? I've been reading a lot of Midwestern poets or trying to read a lot of Midwestern poets. I've been reading a lot of Mari Evans, who, I mean, Mari Evans was, I think most people identify her with Indianapolis, which is rightfully, you know, she's that city I think she wrote about and loved, and she was kind of at the center of it. She was born in Ohio, which, not to, I have like a running list of every person who has ever been born in Ohio, <laughs> which is, uh, which... I love it. Uh, I think most of my friends are, are really uh, exhausted by it. But I've been reading a lot of... Um, Come on, man. Uh, we at Arby's, man. Look at yeah. <laughs> I've been reading a lot of Midwestern poets and, and a lot of Midwestern poets who are who like wrote explicitly about where they're from. My first book of poems is about Columbus. But I realize now, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm proud of that book. I wrote the best book I could at the time with the tools I had. Yeah. But I wish I would have been more responsible about reading poets who wrote about place. You know, I think I carried some, I don't know if I would call it arrogance, but a boldness that fueled me to, to think about writing about place as something singular because the place I was writing about felt singular, right? So it was like, well, I didn't grow up reading about Columbus, right? I didn't grow up reading any poems about Columbus, and so, like, I'm going to write these poems about Columbus and I'm going to do it. And that's that, you know, and in between after that book and in between this next one, I spent so much time and I'm still spending so much time reading the many ways that people write about place. Yeah. Um, 
the poet Adrian Matika also writes about Indianapolis and he's more, you know, Mari Evans was prominent like decades ago and Adrian Matika's contemporary. So I've become really invested in writing about or reading poets who are writing about Midwestern cities that aren't Chicago, which of course, all love to Chicago, you know, great, great place. Um, Great sandwiches, you know. (laughs) (laughs) That's my point of reference as a Southerner, but go on. (laughs) But I, you know, I think you come up in, if you come up in the Midwest, you, you're just kind of enveloped by Chicago and on some level Detroit, but less so the Indianapolises or the Clevelands or the Pittsburghs. Yeah. Or even like the Minneapolis of the upper Midwest too, or the capital W Midwest, Midwest like St. Louis. And so it's been really good for me to seat myself into that kind of writing, particularly because like a lot of people, I've been so engaged in the movement work that's been happening right now, the uprisings, and have been thinking about how the machinery of so many of our cities is unique, but not unique in how it fails its people, right? Yes, yes. Like, unique in many ways, but not unique in its failures. Oh, they they got that shit on Blueprint. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. We got the formula. Pass it on to you. Yeah. And it's because, it's so much of it is because I don't think that people are imagined as, as people. They're imagined as, like, parts of the larger machine. And so I've been reading a lot of poems that kind of are a bit granular when thinking about how people live and how people survive in places. Yes, but that's interesting. It's like this idea of place, right? Like you're talking about the Midwest. It's it's, it's fascinating for me as a Southerner to hear you talking about the Midwest because like I'd never visited the Midwest extensively until I started touring. Like you said, like I knew Chicago, I knew Detroit, like the iconic imagery of those places. I didn't know them. But to go like to drive to the, the Midwest, like towns like Illinois and like in Ohio and, and Missouri. It's so interesting to see like with the United States, cause it's so big, like you can live here your entire life and not know jack shit and not right. have any sort of like way to contextualize a people. And I feel like right now, like with COVID happening, like we are so disparate and like disconnected. We don't know each other. Like we don't know each other. Like we've been separated. Like, and so the language that we're, We've been taught to speak the language of capitalism. It's almost left our tongues broken, you know, to the ability to express real shit to one another. And I think part of the beauty of of this virus is that we're now speaking the same language. Yeah. Or at least like striving towards it. Yeah. We're trying. We're trying to talk to one another. And like, that's what poetry is doing for me right now. It's like, it's not just letting me speak, but it's letting me speak to you. And it's letting me hear you. I think this, that's beautiful. I do think, it's particularly for Black folks in America, there are, due to the many migrations of our people, you know, like there are connective threads like sonically and voice in our writing and all this. Like I think about funk, how funk's roots are in, in Ohio, in like Dayton, Ohio. Yeah. Largely it's because people stopped moving. Like all the people who migrated to Chicago, there were some who needed to keep moving. And then uh, Dayton, Ohio is a place where people could have basements, houses of basements, you know. Yes. Uh, and in those basements funk was born you know like this music was made that had its roots in the blues and in gospel and in this kind of like choral driving percussion the percussion of the body the hand claps and the like slapping of the legs and that undoubtedly braids us back to the south you know what i mean like that is right like the, the percussion when no instrument is available or the body is an instrument yeah that is that is southern and so um Something that I think has been important for me to to do as I've gotten older and as I've traveled more and as I've talked to more people is to, like, not be Black and fetishize the South as I've, like, seen, you know what I mean? I mean, you know probably better than I do, obviously. Yeah. Uh, like, to be aware of the fact that, like, I have real connections and real roots there that aren't this kind of, you know, the goal is to never make to don't don't make magical Negroes of my own people, you know? Oh, that yeah. Kind of thing. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know that shit. I, I see that shit, too. When, whenever, like, one of us gets fucking lynched, they're like, he was a good man. Like, he, yeah. he used to, like, shelter puppies. And, you know, it's like, stop doing that. Like, I, if, if I get lynched by the police, they're going to say, Adia, never play your sprint bill on time. Like, she would watch Bold and Beautiful reruns when she was depressed. And she generally didn't like doing much for other people. But my life is still sacred. Like, I don't have to be a magical Negro in order to be divine. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. That's been something that I am pushing back against since I've been in Nashville, like, making music. It's like there's this, like, push to fetishize the South. Like, it's all, like, 
you know, it's all beer and boots and like trucks and, and, and bullshit. And it's like, nah, man, like this shit's bullshit. Like this music row shit that like you guys keep pushing and like tell us like this is what the South is like. The South is the most complicated, difficult, tough piece of meat on the entire body of the United States, you know, and, and that's hard to grapple with. I think it's difficult for a lot of white people to walk this soil, but it's like, no, nah, if you're going to walk here, you're going to deal with this. And like, as, as Southern artists, I'm going to make you face it and I'm going to make you deal with it. And it's going to be hard, but it's going to be beautiful. Like, trust me, it's going to be good. Have you come down South much? Like if you've been down here? Oh yeah. 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 I'm, I'm, I don't, I mean, I've especially been to Nashville kind of a lot because Nashville is one of those places that is um, like a short enough drive from Columbus to, to make it worthwhile. And so like, you know, and I have homies there, you know, like homies who, you know, like, like Tiana Clark, who I think you know, and See, Tiana yeah. and, and Kendra Nicolo and, and oh, like yeah. homies who, who write and who I, and I love reading in Nashville, but often even more than that, I spent time in Mississippi. I spent a lot of time in New Orleans. My brother lived in, in, in Louisiana for a while. And so, you know, I just, I've spent more time there, I think in the past decade of my life than in the first decades of my life. And I think the thing that's important to remember for me or that has been important to remember for me is that there are many different types of the South yes. where, you know, and I think the Midwest, the thing, this thing that happens is the Midwest is monolithic or people imagine it as monolithic, is particularly when it comes time to like cast a vote. Yeah. Um, but there are like a million different types of Midwest. You know what I mean? Columbus, Ohio, it's not even the same as Cleveland, Ohio. It's not. Ohio's wild. Ohio's wild. It's a very, <laughs> there are maybe like 10 different types of Ohio. Um, Come at you a lot of different ways. <laughs> it's like, I, but I think the South, I mean, I think any region is like that. But I think the Midwest and the South often get lumped into this thing where it's like, oh, that's the South. But yes. You know, like Oxford, Mississippi isn't the same as like Meridian, Mississippi. No. Right? And those two places are very Southern, but I think it's important to define our regions more clearly, particularly because it honors the people who are in them. Right, yeah. And it honors the people who have built a life in them despite not often being welcomed there in some cases. Yeah. So that's, yeah, I've been thinking about that a lot. You know, I don't actually consider Nashville the South. Like, it, it feels to me culturally more like a Midwest city. And I guess it's just because I was I, I came up in South Carolina, which is like deep south. So when I go home to South Carolina, like I feel the difference in the air. Like I feel it culturally. Like, you know, the Negroes of South Carolina are the same as like Negroes here in Tennessee. Right. Culture it's a different culture. And that but that's been my main objective as an artist, like, is to examine the South because it is it is so married, it is so varied and, and, and stratified. And, you know, I think that's one of the cool things that Caroline's piece did in the New York Times mm. about monuments. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, before she wrote that piece, she was like, uh, I'd, she, she's kind of nervous about it because she's like, I think it's going to give me a lot of attention. And I was like, girl, you about to have like a spotlight thrown on you because you are, you are expanding the way that people feel about the South. And people are very particular and sensitive about the South because the South holds so many American truths about itself. And so I think what her essay did was like, well, here was your preconceived notion about these Confederate monuments and who they represented, who they represented it and who who had a claim to them. And I'm about to completely like fuck with the way that you view it. So I think that there's a power there for artists like to be from this region. You have the ability to like tap into this place in the American imagination that I don't think people anywhere else are able to get to. And I think that that's what that essay did. Is I think it's why it caught on the way it did because it just like yeah. fucked with a lot of people's minds about what the South meant. I'm I'm being told, well, someone in the chat said that whether or not we stop talking, it'll, it's going to stop us at seven. So ah. uh, before, <laughs> one thing that I really want to talk about, like, what are you listening to right now? Like, what is, what's in your, what's in your, what's in your headphones, like beyond this conversation? Fiona Apple, fetch the bolt cutters. Yeah. I haven't been able to get off that one. I'm still listening to it as if it came out like yesterday. Yeah, that's my girl. I'm still listening to Fetchable Cutters. I, I love Fiona Apple's writing. I love, today I was thinking about songwriters who, lyricists who employ like the long sentence. Yes. Because I think something that jumps out of my work is perhaps like the long sentence for better or worse, sometimes for worse. But Fiona Apple's one of those lyricists where it's like the sentences are always long. Yes, you know? yes. Bitch got a lot um, to say. She got a lot to say. Yeah. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. It, it makes me, like, when I hear it, I can see the words formulating on the page. It's like, there's not a period or a comma uh-huh. or, like, uh-huh. an M dash. There it's just, like, breath. a run-on. Yeah, not even breath. Yeah. And I have, yes. I really love that. I've, I've always loved yes, that. Yes, yes. Got um, space me on the guess. 
I've been listening to, um, well, because of 6805, in a way, part of my life is, is making playlists for years that are long past. And so I made the 1977 playlist this year, which took up a lot of time. But I'm I also, hold on, I'm going to look at, I'm going to look at like my, I have a playlist of like 2020 music. Yeah. So I don't lose my place in the world because sometimes I think I listen to so much stuff. Oh, I listened, I'm listening to um, Jake Blount. He's, have you heard of him? Yeah, from Carolina Chocolate Joint. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I like his joint. And there's this band called Candice that I really got into. Okay. Because their album felt like a, a summary album. And nice. I don't feel very summery most days. <laughs> like, I'm, I, it is summer, but I, you know, like, every time I go outside, I'm kind of awash with terror. And that okay. is not the summer feeling. <laughs> That's not the summer feeling I'm used to. Um, and weirdly, not weirdly, because I like their last record, but speaking of like an album that feels like summer in a different way, I love the new City Girls album. Oh, I haven't checked out yet. Mostly because it took me out of this space. I was The City Girls album dropped, I think, at a time when like I was out of protest a lot. I was kind of like just immersed in so much movement work and so exhausted. And yeah. so then the City Girls album dropped and it's like, listen, these are a bunch of songs about like scamming men. Uh, these are a bunch <laughs> of songs about like... You know, like it was it was this weird contrast where it was like, listen, what politics are anti-capitalist. But at the same time, I kind of love this album about like scamming men for their money. You know, Uh, it allowed me to kind of like it allowed me to kind of get back into a space where I could say the shit I love can be aligned with just making me feel good and make me feel energized enough to pursue the capital W work. And it doesn't always have to be like a political statement. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like the City Girls album makes me feel like I can go on a run. And at the end of that run, I will feel energized and I will be able to go back out into the streets and in some way support my people, you know? Yes. And that is also, a, that's also an album that aligns with my politics, even if it is not like a, you know? And so yeah. that is what I've been immersed in. I love it. I love all of that. Yes. Yeah. Okay. This was, this was great. Yeah. Uh, we should, Talk House should just let us do this every week. I mean, really, I would love to do this again with you. This was, this has just been, yeah, a light. Thank you. Thank you. This was a joy. We'll talk soon, hopefully, in the world. Thank right. you. Cheers. Adia Victoria, Hanif Abdurakib, thank you so much for joining us here on the Talk House podcast. Listeners, make sure to subscribe. We have some fantastic talks coming up, like Bruce Hornsby with James Mercer of The Shins, Wadada Leo Smith with Deerhoof, and Bob Mould with Bullies Alicia Bugnano. Every voice you heard today was recorded skillfully by themselves. Great job, everybody. Hashtag Stay Home Studios. Our producer extraordinaire is Mark Yoshizumi. Research for today's show was provided by Samantha Small. Check out TalkHouse on all your favorite socials, including Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, all at TalkHouse. There's some cute pictures of Hanif and Adia there. The TalkHouse podcast theme music was composed and performed by The Range. One note before we sign off, we have some very cool TalkHouse podcasts live on Instas coming up. Make sure to keep an eye on the aforementioned socials, or you can always check the events tab at TalkHouse.com. Till next week, I'm Elia Einhorn. I'm Josh Modell. Peace and, and poetry. poetry. Whoa.